All right, Book of Jude. The Book of Jude. We were going to, this morning, start the next section, but then I got here early. And so when I read it again, you know what that means. It means we still can't move on, all right? The Book of Jude. Let's, uh, we'll just start reading uh, the first four verses because really everything kind of changes in verse 5. But we'll start reading in uh, the book of Jude, starting in verse 1. Everybody ready? All right, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Now remember verses 1 and 2, we called that what in our outline, if anyone remembers? The greeting, all right? We won't go back and review all the elements of the greeting. That was pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Then starting in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares for who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What did we call those two verses? The purpose. Now, starting in verse five is when everything changes. We've kept, we've I thought we had done a pretty good job at looking at everything in the purpose, but I decided this morning that we're going to go back and add some things to this and really look at it and, and hopefully bring some ideas, kind of really get them burned into our brains that we do not forget them because I think there's a, there's an, a kind of a danger that's hinted at in these verses that we may not see. All right, so let's, let's, let's just start taking this apart, all right? Let's, let's go back through this, all right? So in verse 3, Jude lets them know that, when, uh, that he gave all diligence to write unto them of the common salvation. So originally he was going to write to them about the common salvation, the salvation that they all have experienced or they all have received, right? That was what he wanted to do. But something changed dramatically, that, or something changed his purpose dramatically, and what did his purpose change into? Instead of writing about the common salvation, what did he decide to do? It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you. What's the idea of to exhort them? Encourage. What else? Plead. Beg. Remember, we looked at the Greek word, right? To plead. To beg. To try to say, guys, look, there's something here I need you to do. I need you to pay attention to. There's something I'm going to try to challenge you to do, right? And I'm going to plead with you to do this. I'm going to beg you to do this. He's going to exhort them that they should do what? Earnestly contend for the faith. And remember, we looked at the Greek word, right? And everything about uh, the Greek word. I'm just going to give you a little bit more information in regards to that phrase, earnestly contend for the faith. According to one source, the Greek word translated contend earnestly, um, we get our word agonize. The picture is of a wrestler grappling with an opponent determined not to give up an inch of territory. So I, I think if we, if we get that picture in our mind, he really is trying to challenge them that they have to be ready to do what? To agonize, to contend, to struggle for the faith. 
Now, we talked about the faith, but I just want you to get this idea that he's trying to encourage, challenge, beg, and plead. This is not for pastors per se. This is not for missionaries per se. This is for everyone who claims to be a Christian that he is challenging them to agonize in a struggle. Right? To agonize in a struggle. Now, remember, I talked about my frustrations with this because in reality, we, we can preach this, we can teach this, and everybody will like, amen, wonderful, great. But do we actually agonize and engage in this type of struggle? Remember, I really challenged us on that perspective. But I kind of want to detour a little bit here, all right? And I want to ask us a very important question. And this is going to set everything up for this morning, I think. When we engage... And a struggle, when we engage in an agonizing struggle in regards to doctrine, theology, the Bible, there are some possible problems that can arise. Would we all agree with that? Yes? So I want us to first and foremost just think about some possible dangers that are involved when we find... Now, I think, I think a lot of Christians just decide not to be involved in it. They're not going to do what they need to do to be prepared to do it. I've already dealt with that. But I just want us to think in practical terms, what is the possible danger? What is the possible downside to finding yourself agonizing and a struggle about the faith. And you can throw out your options. I know we're missing people, but that's okay. You just have to step up and be the ones to answer this morning, all right? Okay, division and separation, yes. That would be, that would be a, a possible result of it, yes. If you're agonizing and struggling about the faith, there's going to be a possible disagreement, and there could possibly be division, okay? That would be a, a possible negative side effect, all right? I'm thinking more about what's the inherent danger built into doing that actual activity. What's the, the possible danger in, in being involved in agonizing, struggling for the faith? Okay. Okay, we could be persecuted for it. Okay, I, yeah. I'm not... Yeah, I, I'm, always, I'm always hesitant to say that because... Uh, Especially in America, Christians, I mean, if someone look at us the wrong way and Christians scream persecution. So sometimes I, I'm not a big fan of like, as soon as someone doesn't like us, we're like, we're being persecuted. And you know, while other Christians in other countries are being killed, you know. So, okay, but I think it's possible, but I, I, I don't know if that's the inherent danger that I'm looking for. Let me think of it this way, all right? So you're, you're kind of going with the possible consequences, Right? What is the possible inherent danger to you and engaging and struggling with the faith? However direction you want to go. I'll just keep asking it different ways until I can kind of get us there. Okay. I, I, I like that one. I, I hadn't thought of that one. I think if you're constantly ag agonizing, struggling about the faith, constant, 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 which if you try to do it, you're going to constantly be doing it. I think it can lead to a lot of like, well, nobody agrees on anything. What's the point? I think, that, I think there is a possible inherent danger to us that it can create doubt, frustration, discouragement. 
I think, I think there's a, a, a possible one that I had not thought of. What are some others? All right, let's ask it this way. Anyone here married? Anyone here have kids? Okay. Anyone have brothers or sisters? Okay, all right. Right, there you go. All right. I'll, I'll make sure everyone is involved in this illustration. Okay. I'll find, okay. Whenever you find yourself agonizing and struggle with someone, what has a tendency to happen? You don't always conduct yourself in a right way. So there is an inherent danger in struggling, right? There's an inherent danger in arguing. There's an inherent danger in disagreeing because sometimes we go from disagreeing to becoming disagreeable. We sometimes become bothered by a false idea to now being angry or hating a person. Do you see how this can how something can begin to emerge here? Yes? Now, we, we hinted at this in, in our discussion, so I just want you to think, that I want you to think about this. I want you to just, if you want to write anything down, I want you to write down the possible dangers that arise from agonizing struggle for the faith. Some possible dangers. All right? And I'm just going to throw out some, some thoughts, all right? And you, you threw out a little bit, okay? I think the, the greatest, I, I'm just going to put this in a kind of, we'll try to, I'll maybe get more specific as we move on. I'll start in a very general way. I think one of the major dangers when we're at, in, in a, involved in an agonizing struggle for the faith, we're contending for the faith, we're earnestly doing so, is that at some point we are contending for truth, we're contending for the faith, but we do so in a very unbiblical way. We fight for truth, but not in a way consistent with the truth. Have you ever found yourself in an argument with someone? It could be, a straight, it could be someone you work with. It could be a family member. It could be a spouse. It could be a brother or sister. And you are on the right side of the argument. You are on the right side. You're right and they are wrong and you know they are wrong. You don't know why they won't admit that they're wrong. But 30 minutes into said fight, it no longer matters that you're right because your actions and your words end up making you wrong. Have you, has that ever happened? Am I, is that the only, am, I, am I the only person that's ever happened to? Right? I mean, you, sometimes even as a parent, you're, you're, you're right and the child is wrong, but before it's over, <laughs> who cares that you're right anymore? Because now you've just acted like an absolute unreasonable jerk. Anybody been there? It's a danger to struggle for the faith because sometimes within the struggle, we struggle in a way that is wrong. That's not a good thing. That is a negative thing. That's a danger that we have to be, like when we're struggling with it, we have to maintain. Look, here's the thing with Christianity. Not only do we have to, 
engage in this agonizing struggle. We must engage in the agonizing struggle in a way that is consistent with the truth that we're struggling about. That means there's a right way and there is a wrong way. And that can, I don't know about you, that can be very, very difficult to do. It doesn't matter if you win the argument, if you carried yourself in a way that wasn't consistent with the truth you're arguing about. And, we, and, and all you have to do, and here's the bizarre thing, what's really happened is a, a lot of the and, you know, and agonizing struggle for the faith occurs for many Christians on social media. And anyone with, <laughs> social media is not the place to have a struggle about anything, okay? I mean, much less disagreeing about food, much less doctrine and theology. Because nobody listens to one another, and it almost always descends into what? Personal attacks. Name calling. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. And it's, it's sad that that's what Christianity constantly just breaks down to. I've, 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 we've talked about it on the podcast hundreds of times. I've played audio clips. And it's just absolutely crazy that you can sometimes listen to Christian radio and they're bothered or upset, maybe by a politician, maybe by a political party, maybe by a... Fall. And the next thing, they're calling them names. They're just acting like children and you're like, that's not the way Christians are to conduct themselves. Now, it's easy to do that when you get upset, right? Then you want to call them a name. You, you may want to call them a name. You want, may want to be derogatory. You may think you, that you're being funny or by being condescending or sarcastic. But at some point, we have to remember to contend for the faith. We have to do so in a way that is consistent with the truth. Does that make sense? Right? So, what's the first danger? Yeah, that we become in, that we can struggle for the faith in such a way that we become inconsistent with the truth which we're struggling for. And that's, that's just an, that's just a bad thing. I, is any, I, 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 I know that I'm not the only one that's ever been guilty of it. Okay? Because some, because I can, I can go very much quickly into, you know, because I was on the debate team, went to debate, you know, the state championship for the state of Texas in debate. I man, I'm, I can debate all day, but guess what the goal is in debate? Win. Or as I used to say, what's our, what's our goal here on the debate team? Destroy the other people and make them look stupid. Okay. Right? That, that, was my, that was my purpose, right? I, wouldn't, I don't care about being nice. I don't care if they walk away crying. I'm going to win and you're going to look stupid. Right? That was the goal. Not very Christian. I wasn't a, well, I was a Christian at the time when I was on the debate team, okay? So, but I, I, that's still the way I, I, it was a competition. Now, then you move forward, you start studying doctrine, you start studying theology, and then anyone who disagrees... My mind immediately goes into what? Destroy them! I've won plenty of debates. That doesn't mean that anything was done in a godly way. Does that make sense? Winning a debate... See, winning the debate is not the goal. See, the goal for the Christian... uh, This is very important. The goal for the Christian is not to win the argument. 
What's the goal for the Christian? So we'll go, number one is we can argue in a way that's inconsistent with the truth. Number two, we'll just go ahead and put number two down. I've already alluded to it. Sometimes we, fight, we, we act as if the goal is to win the argument. The goal is not to win the argument. What is the goal? And I, look, I still forget this every single time. Right? I forget this every single time. Because I immediately fall back into, oh, you're going to disagree with me? Well, let's go. Here we go. All right, here's scripture, here's scripture, here's scripture, here. Here's three things from church history. Duh, duh, duh. Here's the Greek, here's the Hebrew. Yes. What do you got to say? Come on. What do you got to say now? Right? I go into that mode, right? which is bad. What, for the Christian, what is the goal? The goal isn't to win. Okay? To be a witness for Christ and to glorify him. Not to win the argument. I forget that every single time. I mean, every single time. I mean, I get lots of emails when you have a podcast that as many people listen to as we have, right? I get lots of crazy stuff that come at us all the time, right? And sometimes I want to turn on the microphone and respond to said email or respond to said comment on YouTube. And sometimes I like, so what's my goal here? Right? Like right before I get ready to turn on that microphone, I have to ask, what's my goal getting ready to be, right? Is my goal their, their destruction, their humiliation? Because I have the mic and they don't. They got the comment section. I have the microphone. That that can't be the goal. I I forget that. Can't be the goal. So maybe, maybe this is not for any of you. Maybe I'm the only one who has these dangers. But I think that these dangers are built into all of us. Right? So whenever you, whenever you get ready to contend, whenever you get ready to be involved in that struggle, you have to stop and ask yourself, what is my goal here? What is my purpose here? Even if it's an argument with your child about something dealing with Christianity, what is your goal? Is your goal like, you're going to believe what I believe? Or is your goal to be a witness to Christ and to glorify him? That's a, that's a radical, does anybody notice the difference there? I mean, I wish I would have learned this a long time ago, but I know mine was to mutually destroy any opponent who stepped up to, you know, Stepped in any way to hit perform. And if you go back in church history, read, read some of the church fathers, read Luther, read Calvin. Man, whoo! They went after their enemies and they just they called them names. I mean, if we read some of the things that they would say, you'd be like, what in the world are they doing? Yeah, letters or back and forth, yeah. And sometimes you're just you have to just go, wow, what in the world are you doing? You know, that's, I don't think that's the right approach. So what's the first possible danger, first possible problem? We fight in a way that's not consistent. Number two, we make the goal to win. And we forget what the goal should be. What would be a third possible problem? We forget a very important principle that for some weird reasons Christians constantly ignore, especially in 2022. 
Right? I know nobody likes this principle, but as far as I know, it's still in the Bible. Okay? I don't even think new translation. I don't even think paraphrases remove it. Let me see if I can remind. It goes something like this. Let me see if I can remember it. See, it's hard because we, we forget this. It goes something like, love your enemies. Does anybody remember that? I think it was like Christianity like a thousand years ago. Okay, Love your enemy. Let's see if I think some other. Turn the other cheek. Do good to them that would despitefully use you. Bless them who would persecute you. Okay? See, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. If he's naked, clothe him, right? We're getting some basic concepts here, right? We forget that. We forget that we're supposed to demonstrate love even to our enemy, even to the enemy of the faith. Now, it doesn't mean we say, you're right, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. No, we can still say, look, you're wrong, but we demonstrate still love even to those whom we believe are wrong. And we forget that. So much. And, and a lot of it is because p- politics have so crept into the church that the church almost views things like how politicians act. They act like children calling each other names and everybody's like, ooh, this is fun. It's not fun. It's sad. Now, if you want to throw out Christianity, by all means, go engage in name calling and act like jerks and go, go ahead for it. But that's not the way Christians are to conduct themselves. You say, well, ooh, they really got... Whichever political party you're opposed to, ooh, man, they really got them. Is, is that the Christian way? Now, we can disagree with a policy. We can disagree with an idea. But we have to, we have to not. We've got to remember, we're supposed to love our enemy. So even in my disagreeing, even in my struggling, even in my fighting, I have to somehow still maintain the idea that I'm supposed to love the enemy. And you know what this demonstrates? Why we sometimes forget, and, that, and I think this is important, sometimes we forget to love our enemy because we forget that the purpose here is to hopefully provide a witness, right? To glorify God, hopefully to help them Sometimes we forget that we're there to help them and all we see is them as an opponent to be defeated. We see them as an opponent to be defeated. That's not, that's not the biblical way. And it's, it's, easy, it's easy to forget that, right? I'm supposed to demonstrate love to them. I just forget love. I'm here to beat them. Right? I, I see it, and it's easy to fall into that. It's easy to fall into that. And just, I mean, it, it, you just watch Christians on social media and just see how all the, sometimes you just go, is any, does anybody see how we're acting, how we're conducting ourselves? Does anyone see this as glorifying God, showing love to enemy? It's just ridiculous. And, it's, and nobody wants to hold up their hand and go, I think we should just all probably just stop and just, you know, maybe this whole experiment went horribly wrong. 
Because in some cases, it's hard to know the difference between the world and the Christians. The only difference is the different things we're arguing about and the size we take versus the side they take. But our actions and attitudes are very similar. Oh, they may use, quote-unquote, bad words, but we, we have our own... We still, uh, look, you don't have to use bad words to still be allowing corrupt communication to proceed out of your mouth because anything that's not glorifying God or building someone up or is not true or accurate is wrong. And that's just, we, we, can't, we can't do that. There's a danger here, right? There's a whole, there's, there's plenty more. Right? But I just want you to just think for a second. Whenever we have to earnestly contend, we have to stop. And it's just not, oh, I have to contend. It's how we contend. We are contend in a way that is consistent with, the, with what God calls us to do. And if you go back to Jude, remember we talked about this a little bit, that I think that there is a reason that blessing was given at the end of verse, or at the, in verse 2. Does everybody remember that? Mercy, peace, and love. You can write down, we we can just write down this as a principle. In my contending, I need to show mercy, I need to seek peace, and I need to demonstrate love. Mercy, peace, and love. Not easy to do, is it? Definitely not easy to do. And I, I've, got, I've got plenty of times in my life where I've failed to do those things. There's other times where I felt like I did a pretty decent job. It's, 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 it's always a mixed bag because, well, we all have our strengths and weaknesses in this area. Some people, they never have to feel bad for how they contend because they never contend, all right? Okay, so that's, you know, hey, I don't ever get into these arguments. Well, wonderful, because you never contend. Then there are others who contend and I'll pat themselves on the back and like to tell the stories of how they contended and how they argued with someone. Usually it's Christian men. I love to brag how they got into an argument with someone and made them look stupid. Yeah, look at me. Okay, that, that's not good. There's got to be a balance in there, yes? So I just want us to consider that danger. Now go back to Jude. All right, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, why is he so committed to getting them to contend for the faith? For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now, let's just stop here for a second, okay? The reason they have to contend for the faith is because some people have crept in. Crept into where? The church. They've crept into the church. So there's people within the church that they have to contend with which is somewhat fascinating because this demonstrates that sometimes our contention is with those in the church far more than it is with those outside of the church because the greatest danger usually lies within Christianity, not outside of Christianity. We've talked about all of this, yes? Right now, this is very important. That phrase, I just want to briefly mention this. I don't want to spend too much time with it. That these men are what? What does it say in verse 4? 
who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now, some people read this and think that this immediately has to deal with God's eternal purposes, his eternal providence, and that this is speaking that these men were from eternity past condemned. That's how a lot of people read this. I don't know if that's an exact accurate understanding here. So we're going to just work a little bit on this so that we'll see. Let's first of all look at this and a number of English translations because you'll immediately see that there's uh, somewhat of a disagreement on exactly how this should be understood. All right, everybody ready? Let's go to New International Version first. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, That's not referring to a condemnation that happened in eternity past in the mind of God. This is their condemnation was what? Had been written about long ago. In other words, these men had been condemned in the past by the prophets and other biblical texts which condemns false teachers. That these people have been condemned in the past. Does that make sense? Um, uh, The New Living. Uh, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people were recorded long ago. The condemnation was recorded long ago. Does that make sense? Uh, ESV, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Right? That's not, that's kind of going maybe a possibly different uh, direction. The King James says, before of old, ordained to this condemnation. So that really leads to, maybe this is from eternity past. Most people believe that this is referring to the fact that there's plenty of passages going all the way back in the Old Testament that condemns what? False teachers. So that most likely this is simply saying that these people, that what has crept into the church is nothing unique. It's nothing new. That these people have been condemned for this kind of behavior way in the past. Does that make sense? I think that's probably the correct way to look at it. All right. So these men have crept into the church. Everybody got that? Now, this is what, and I don't want to spend a lot more time on that. We could, but let's just, let's, let's look at what these men have done. They've crept into the church. Their condemnation has been written about in the past. All right. And what is the main issue here? What is the main thing that they have done when they crept into the church? What's the main issue Jude seems to have with these men? They've turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. They've taken the concept of God's grace and let's say they have abused it, misused it, misapplied it, and this is creating major problems within the church. So let's do this first. If you have the Blue Letter Bible app, let's go to lasciviousness. Let's get a good idea of exactly what they have done to God's grace. All right. Let's go to, that's verse 4. Yes. Let's go to the interlinear. And let's go to lasciviousness. All right. Everybody ready? Learn a new Greek word. Here we go. Everybody ready? Strong's G766. As Elgaya. As Elgaya. As Elgaya. And it's used how many times? Nine times. And it's translated six times lasciviousness, two times wantonness, one time 
filthy. Strong's definition? What? Now, there's a lot of uncertainty described there, but apparently meaning what? Look, do what? What do we find here? Okay. Yeah, that's the outline of biblical usage. Look at Strong's definition. Okay. We have filthy. We have lasciviousness. We have wantonness. Right? So we don't, get a, we, don't have a, we don't have a lot of clear things there. But if we look at the outline of biblical usage, we get some very specific. Yes? They take God's grace and turn it into, now that you can write all of these down, unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. All right, so what, what have they done to God's grace if you look at all of that? Okay. Do what? All right, they've said, they basically, someone just said it, they're taking grace and have turned it into license for sin. They've taken this concept of grace and said, now because we have been saved by grace, you're now free to do whatever you want to do. Live not just any way you want to, you can live in the most ungodly way, self-satisfying way as you can find. Now, I'm going to approach this a little differently here, okay? And I want you to put your thinking caps on. Yes, I understand that there have been, within church history, certain forms of issues that have arisen within the church, right? We can look at antinomianism. We've talked about that in the past, right? We're basically no law, right? We've talked about that. There have been issues within many churches where, hey, you're saved by grace. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. But in many situations... For most churches, that's not necessarily the issue. The issue comes, remember what we started with? What some of the dangers when we begin to fight, we begin to struggle, and we begin to wrestle with false doctrine? I told you some of those dangers. I think Stephen knows where I'm getting ready to go. We have a tendency to do this, and this happens throughout church history. Whenever someone takes a doctrine, a theology, a practice, they abuse it, they attack it. The defense against it sometimes leads to an error that is equally bad. It's just an opposite error, right? So in other words... One side goes all the way to the, to the right side, right? They go all the way over here. And they're like, hey, grace, license, lasciviousness, do whatever you want. This is way over here, right? And immediately there's going to be people going, whoa, what are they doing? That's just so wrong. And they start arguing against it. Like, we've got to fight. We've got to push back. And so immediately they stop and go, okay, I don't want to be a part of the licensed crowd, the lasciviousness crowd. So they're like, 
run. So they run from them, right? We're going to leave their churches. We're going to get away from them. And then they come run way over here and they establish a counter argument that is just as erroneous, but just in a different way. Okay, that is a major issue. Right? So I want you to see that these people crept into the church and they've attacked the grace of God. Everyone knows that these, this side is wrong, yes? God's grace doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want to do. You can just live any way you want to live. I think everyone would acknowledge that is not right. I would hope so. Or put it this way. Most of the people who may hear me, most of the people sitting in this room would know that, hey, we reject that. The problem is, I think sometimes we find ourselves way over here and it becomes a problem. We can see this in church history. Over and over and over and over. Whenever one group arises that maybe has an erroneous idea or an error, the pushback always leads to some kind of like, wait, what just happened? What, what, what occurred? You can see this. If we go back to the late 1800s and the 1900s, you obviously from Europe, you had higher criticism coming in. We talked all about that. Yes. And then you have really kind of the rise, the birth of, we'll call it the evangelical movement, new evangelicalism or evangelicalism. Yes. And evangelicalism took kind of a stance that was like, you know what? We don't want to fight. We don't want to argue. We want to try to get kind of a, a more not a combative way in trying to fight some of these errors. In many cases, you could say they compromised with many of these errors. And many said, enough of this. And they begin to fight against it. And I, you know where I'm getting ready to go because I mention them every single time, right? These four books, right? That I always say for people to read and they never leave here, right? They've been here for 20 years now, okay, right? These, this, these four books are called what? The fun, say everybody knows what these books are. Right? No, everybody's afraid to touch them. The fundamentals, right? The fundamentals, and that was an attempt to do what? To say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got to get back to the fundamentals of the faith. Not only do we have to get back to them, we have to earnestly contend for them. Right? So, as they started trying to reestablish the fundamentals of the faith, we know what happened. They left many of those denominations. Like These denominations are corrupt. They left many of the seminaries, and they established what? Independent churches, because they believed that the, the denominations had become corrupt and compromised. Now, remember, they set up these denominations to do what? To stand for the fundamentals of the faith and to fight for them. Yes? Okay. All sounds good so far. Yes? Now, what happens? Well, before long, the fundamentals of the faith starts being things like the inspiration of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, all of the different things that are written about in here. And the fundamentals of the faith start becoming things like what? What you watch, what you listen to, how you dress, hair. It becomes all of these external things. Pants, makeup, what, you just go on and on and on and on. Playing cards, beards, who knows? Just anything. In it. it became this long list. And the next thing you know, you're like, whoa, what happened to the fundamentals of the faith? 
fundamentals of the faith now became these other issues, right? So now what you had is you have here going, I can do whatever I want. And over here is like, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? Because while they're yelling about these issues, what started to crumble? Doctrinal knowledge, theological knowledge, church history, the creeds got thrown out, confessions of faith got thrown out, everything got thrown out. And it became almost, listen to me, a battle over culture and over, you could almost say convictions, more than it became about doctrine truth. And so now Christianity became reduced to what? We've talked about this in the podcast this week. A form of Christian moralism where it became about rules and do's and don'ts and doctrine and truth and all of this becomes just... And so Christianity became marred and you almost begin to lose sight of what Christianity actually is. So were they right to fight against this? Yes. Where, Where did they go wrong? They ended up all the way over here. That's the danger. We, whenever we find ourselves arguing about a doctrinal issue, we have to be careful that we don't go to an opposite extreme. We've got to be careful that we do not do that. And crazy things, Christians can do crazy things at times. And you're like, what are you, that doesn't even make any sense. What are we doing? And we don't even realize it. So I want us to go, go back to Jude. Oh, man, we're not going to get to these. We're out of time, but that's okay. All right. These men creep in. They've been condemned in the past, right? So there's nothing new about their condemnation. Everybody should know that what they're doing is wrong. But the main issue is they turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. All right? So the grace of God is being attacked. Now, we, we could spend all day talking about, hey, grace doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, but I want to look at it from the side of what happens when we reject grace as lasciviousness or grace as license. I want to reject that and I want, and I want to talk about the, what we can do by going to a wrong extreme. So I want us to consider some things here. So this is how I wrote, the, wrote it in my notes, all right? When grace is abused, we tend to fight back by turning to legalism. We tend to fight back when grace is turned into lasciviousness, we tend to fight it with legalism. But we would never claim to be a legalist. Right? Agreed? We re- rarely do you realize if you're falling into a legalistic trap. So let's consider the following. You ready? Here's how to try to avoid doing this. Number one, we must constantly be on the alert that we're not adding to God's word. We have to constantly be making sure we're not adding to God's word. How do we add to God's word? We like to do what? Impose rules and ideas that are not actually found in Scripture. Someone commits a sin, and we'll say, here's the consequences. Does the Bible necessarily lay out what the consequences are? Even if it doesn't, we'll, we'll make our own list of consequences. Well, where did those consequences come from? Right? 
We'll make a list that you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. Where did that come from? Now, we always will try to find a scripture to justify our point. Now, please make sure you understand. When we slide into legalism, we will always find a scripture that you think will prove your point. But sometimes you're like to go, like, what does that actually say? You're like, it says this. And you're like, okay, what does that actually mean? Because I think you're going a little beyond it. Now, look, for your own personal conviction, you can do whatever you want. Right? That's what's one of the beautiful things of being single. Emma can come up with whatever personal conviction she wants, and she can make all the rules she wants, and it only impacts whom? Herself. Right? That's great. Now, well, this becomes a major problem. When you become a parent, you get a personal conviction, and then you want to impose that personal conviction on everyone else. That's where it can become an, an, an issue, right? It can become problematic. But when, we, when you're by yourself, it's okay. The one thing we have to do is whatever we decide, we got to make sure we draw a distinction between personal conviction and what? God's Word. I'll give you an example. I loathe. I hate I despise. I wish it was removed from the face of planet Earth. Alcohol. Everybody knows my hatred for alcohol. I loathe it. I hate it. Because 22, working in the medical world for 22 years, seeing the destruction, the destruction, pain, suffering. Oh, man. Alcoholism is an evil, horrible thing. Nobody, when they take the first drink, ever thinks they're going to become an alcoholic. <clears throat> but nobody knows when that lever in the... You, you can drink and drink and drink, maybe for 10 years. But once that lever gets flipped, then you go from drinking to... Well, you go from controlling the drinking to the drinking controlling you. Where now you have to drink. You need to drink. And that's just... It destroys lives. I mean, just look. You don't have to believe... I, I mean, I... I I can bring you every known statistic in the world, how many people have died because of drinking and driving, how many functioning or functioning alcoholics in the United States of America, how many people admitted to hospitals because of alcohol-related, either domestic abuse, abuse, sexual assaults. It's just, you look at the numbers, it's absolutely insane. It's just insane. So if I was an atheist, I'd be like, you're an idiot to drink! There's 25 billion things you can drink that doesn't have alcohol. Right? Look, when I, whenever I go on a cruise, I get all kinds of drinks. I just leave the alcohol out. They taste wonderful. They taste great. I don't have any possible dangers. I don't know of falling off the ship in the middle of the ocean because I'm drunk, which has happened too many times. I hate alcohol. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I despise it. I don't think anyone should do it. And, and, and in fact, I will tell someone who's lost, I will beg them, don't drink. Not because of Christianity. Because if you're lost, this is all you've got. This is the best life you're ever going to have. Right? It only gets worse after this. This is your best life now. So don't drink. Because I don't want you to ruin your one shot, right? I don't ruin, don't ruin it. And, and anyone who says, ah, that's just a, a ridiculous, just let's go, ju- just let's get together and let's go to some alcohol anonymous, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and you'll see what I'm referring to. When you hear their stories and you'll be like, well, that will never be me. Well, go ahead. 
You, I mean, look, I, I, for a Christian, I, I still don't think you should drink, but at least I know that your life after this is going to be better. For a lost person, I'm almost like, please don't do it. This is all you've got. This is all you've got. But I hate it. I despise it. I don't want anyone to do it. But guess what I can't do? I can't tell anyone that it's a sin to do it. Now, if you're underage, I can because you're breaking the law, but okay. But as of age, I can't tell you that it's a sin. Because I'd be doing what? I'd be adding to God's word. God's word does not condemn drinking. Now, yes, you could, we could, I can make all kinds of arguments. Was the product different then than it is now? Absolutely, right? Obviously, there was a difference. Did there, was there a greater need to drink then than now? Yeah, their water supply was polluted and garbage. You didn't want to be drinking it, right? The alcohol could help kill off anything that would be in it, right? So we could talk about the differences. I understand all of that. But when it comes down to it, the Bible doesn't condemn it. It warns against the dangers of it. Right? I think the fact that it tells me that I'm a depraved sinner gives me a pretty good idea that I don't need to add alcohol to my depravity, right? I got enough problems, right? I don't need to add. So I can make good arguments against it. I just can't look at you and say, Emma, if you drink and I find out, you'll be church disciplined. I've gone to churches that would do that. Who imposed that if you're a member of this church, you cannot drink alcoholic beverages. I think that that's sin. I think it's smart, okay, but I don't think it's right. Now, others will say, hey, I'm saved by grace. I can get plastered drunk whenever I want. Okay, that's crazy, and we would say that's wrong because the Bible clearly condemns drunkenness, yes, right? The Bible clearly condemns drunkenness, but guess what I can't do? I can't come way over here and just impose all of these rules. So, you know, if you drink, I'll just be like, okay. If you ask my opinion, I'll be like, what are you doing? Okay. You don't ask my opinion. I, I, I leave you alone. Now, I may, whenever I pr- get on a, a sermon where we preach about alcohol, I'll, I'll bring in every known statistic under the sun. I'll bring everyone from every organization in the world. I, I'll, I'll bring this everywhere. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll call my daughter. She goes to schools all over, all over Texas talking about stay away from drugs and alcohol. That's one of her jobs, right, is trying to keep young people from doing drugs and alcohol. Right? I would, I, I'd get every statistic I could. But I can't tell you what. It's a sin because I would be doing what? Adding to God's word. And I cannot do that. Even though I want it to. I can't. Now, we're all, we're all tempted to do that, yes? Because we don't like a certain thing, then we, we, immediately, we immediately will add God's word to condemn it. You can't add one letter. You can't add one punctuation mark. You can't add anything. What God's word says is what God's word says. And you, I know we almost feel like, hey, God, I think you made a mistake here. Really, you really needed to fix this here, okay? Because you're, you're giving people too much freedom here. I mean, I mean, look at it. I wish, I mean, if, if alcohol, if drinking was wrong, Paul could have fixed this problem in the church of Corinth really quick because what were they doing at the Lord's Supper? They were getting drunk! Which clearly indicates that they were using what? 
alcohol. <laughs> okay, But Paul doesn't say, it's a sin to drink. Now, that, that pretty much tells me, if Paul can't add it, I can't add it. Now I can go. I can go from. I can. I could add a number of other situations here, but every time, and people get very uncomfortable. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm going to say this. Right? We're going to run out of time. All right. Almost. All right. Let me make this very clear. You ready? This is very important. Grace always makes us uncomfortable. And you know you probably haven't encountered grace until you feel uncomfortable. Why does grace make make us uncomfortable? Well, grace goes against so many. we, We think we have to earn something, right? Grace says you can't. Right? We, we seem to say bad people should be punished, and grace says, I'll, I'm going to save bad people. Right? Grace is so opposed to our way of thinking. And so grace makes us feel uncomfortable because we're like, man, if I, if I give these people this idea of grace, they're going to go out there and who knows what they're going to do. So we want to take away grace in order to try to make people do the right thing. But you don't, listen, and depravity has never been overcome by rules. Israel had all kinds of rules, did they not? Did it fix them? Rules have never fixed anyone. Never has, never will. You can't fix depravity with rules. Rules may try to push that depravity back, but that depravity will do what? Look, you got the rules, here's depravity. They're going to push, 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 and as soon as they find a way, boom, they're going to get past the rules. Grace is something that is supposedly is to transform us and change us. That's what we need. So what we have a tendency to do is we want to add rules because we're afraid that people can't do this or can't do this or can't do that, can't do this, can't do that. And it, it, always, it almost always backfires. Now, I know we get uncomfortable. We're like, oh, but, but, but there's some rules that we need to add. No, we can't do that. We can't do that. We, can't, we cannot do that. All right? I mean, I mean, when I became a Christian as a teenager, at the time that I became a teenager here in West Texas, First Baptist Church, Tuscola, Texas, where I became a Christian, man, I didn't realize I was walking into nine million rules. I mean, I realized, what in the world? You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. And some of those rules, they would tell you they're in the Bible, but I'm just looking at it going, man, where are you getting these ideas? Now, I'm not saying that you can say, well, the rules are a good idea. Fine, say they're a good idea. Just don't say that they're God's idea, okay? They're your idea. We cannot add to God's word, right? And then I'll just, I'll just mention the second one. I got five of these. It's what I really wanted to get to, but that's okay. I want you to see the danger of contending, right? We can go to an extreme here. We have to avoid attacking Christian liberty. First Corinthians mentions Christian liberty. Romans mentions Christian liberty. We can't attack people's Christian liberty. Some things people have the liberty to do. You may disagree with. Now, listen, can people abuse Christian liberty? 
Yes. Are we to ever use Christian liberty in a way that could hurt you? I, I, or to hurt me? We should never do that. Right? Yes? I may have the liberty to do something thinking that it's perfectly okay and that I don't believe it's wrong. You may disagree and say, nope, I think you're in sin. And I may argue that it's Christian liberty. Christians never agree on what's liberty and what's not liberty. It's a never-ending argument. Okay, but I know this. Whether we agree or disagree, right? If you think something is wrong and I think it's a part of Christian liberty, what should I not do? Flaunt that liberty in front of you or in any way to hurt someone. Right? Or cause someone to stumble. So in some cases, I have to practice my Christian liberty where? Sometimes in private and not brag about it or boast about it or do anything about it. Like I think, look, I think you have the liberty to drink. I hate saying that, but you do. But you know what I don't want you doing? Flaunting it so that it causes someone else a problem. And within many reform circles, it seems to flaunt the fact that you drink is almost a badge of honor. Like we're reformed. So, you know, you have reformed people who will meet in a bar to discuss theology because the Reformation started in the White Horse Inn, which was a pub, and they would sit around drinking beer talking about reformed doctrine. I'm like, so we've got to keep that tradition going in 2022. I'm like, you know what? I, I, are, you, are you somehow making yourself more godly because you're sitting around drinking, talking about theology? I just don't know. And like, that, you may think it's so wonderful until someone in your group becomes an alcoholic, and then nobody ever takes any accountability or responsibility for that. Now, if you want to drink, fine, but the last thing I want to do is promote it or do anything that would cause someone else a problem. Because I don't know. Some people have a genetic predisposition. I don't know when. So I'm not going to do anything to fly. If I was to drink, it would be a private thing. And if, you, if we went out to, to, to eat and I typically, let's say, would, would order alcohol, guess what I would do when you're present? Not do it. Why? Because I'm trying to hide it? No. If you ask me, I would admit it. I mean, I don't drink, obviously. But I'm saying I would not do it for you because I wouldn't want you to stumble. So, you, so we, can res- we, have to re- but we have to respect other people's liberty. And sometimes we attack people. Right? If I, if I, in a restaurant, I look over and Emma's drinking, I can't be like, yeah. and then I start telling people, Emma's probably drunk. She was probably drunk. And just start attacking her. You know what? I don't tell anybody. I shut my mouth. She has the right to do it. Leave her alone. Now, if I see her stumbling out of the restaurant all drunk, okay, well then first I'm going to take her keys from her, slap her three or four times, Okay. Probably call her mom or dad, someone, or call someone who I think will be really mean to her, right? Okay? And then say, what are you doing? What are you doing? I may shake her and yell at her. What are you doing? Okay? But guess what? That, I, I can't condemn the drinking. I can condemn the drunkenness because the Bible would say, let's do so. But we tend to attack Christian liberty. Stop attacking people's liberty. Stay out of it. Okay? None of, you, none of your business. Now, sometimes if they ask for counsel, you can be like, I wonder if this Christian liberty thing here, you're, you're, you're using it to your own destruction. But sometimes you've got to give people, look, you've got to give people, as Christians, they need that freedom to, to, to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. There's got to be a little bit of freedom to work it out and to struggle and to, and to 
and to do so. But there's things that you have liberty to do that others, others don't like you to have said liberty. And I can't stand when people want to impose their, their, their rejection of that liberty on someone else. Don't add to God's word and stop attacking people for practicing Christian liberty. Let them be able to do so. You may think it's a bad idea. You may think, man, give it six months and they're going to be in a mess. Okay, but just, you know what? Just stop acting like you've got it all together and just give them that freedom to work through it. All right? So we got to fight against people who abuse the grace of God, but we've got to make sure that we do what? Don't fight it in a way that makes us attack God's grace in a different way. Do you see how you can attack God's grace by turning it into license? And you can attack God's grace by denying God's grace and promoting legalism. Don't add to God's word and don't attack people's use of Christian liberty. I wanted to get through all five, but we'll stop right there. So what's the major lesson this morning? Okay, well, put them all together. The dangers of contending for the faith. We do so in a horrible way, and sometimes we go to a wrong extreme. We've got to do so in a God-glorifying way. But we have to contend. All right? And I'm not the example on how to contend, because I would just rather win arguments than than do anything. So I'm not the best way. All right? Does that make sense? All right. We'll stop. Lord God, we come before you this morning. The concept of grace is an amazing thing. The attacks on it seem to never stop. Sometimes from those that we view are on the other side, and sometimes from those of us who are trying to stand for your grace, we inadvertently attack it and deny it to people and try to place people in some kind of legalistic prison. Forgive us when we do that. Help us be ambassadors of your grace not deniers of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...